This is Menagerie. Until about a century ago, life on Lord Howe Island had been going on largely undisturbed for hundreds of thousands of years. That's not to say nothing happened, of course. Over the eons, storms lashed the little island off the coast of Australia, shaping the coastline and occasionally bringing new arrivals on rafts of loose vegetation. Humans had arrived there a couple of times, the latest batch of them giving the island its name and establishing a small port where whaling ships could stock up on supplies and provisions for their long stretches at sea. But for the most part, life on the island had hummed along without major interruptions, as had evolution. Islands like Lord Howe are laboratories for natural selection. Their isolation means that new species are rare, so when they do arrive, they either die out quickly or find a niche to exploit in their new environment. Over time, the new pressures and demands of island life change the animals that survive, and after many, many, many generations, whole new species can emerge. Species that are found only on the island where their forebears washed up eons ago. The concept is called island endemism, and it's why small land masses around the world that have otherwise similar climates and geographies are home to completely unique ecosystems and animals. It's why Lord Howe Island, a fairly insignificant remnant of volcanic rock in the Tasman Sea, was the only known home to species like the Lord Howe Island starling, the Lord Howe Island garygon, the Lord Howe Island fantail, the Lord Howe Island thrush, the... Well, you get the idea. And then, on June 15, 1918, the SS Macambo arrived. It wasn't the first time it had arrived. The Macambo was a steamship that ferried supplies and passengers between the Australian mainland and the islands of the Tasman Sea. On this particular trip, though, the ship ran aground on Lord Howe Island's south shore. It wasn't a catastrophic accident for the Macambo. The ship had to be evacuated and repaired, but it was seaworthy again after just nine days on the beach. Those nine days, though, were long enough to forever change the face of life on the island, and to spell doom for many of the species that lived there. After the Macambo was beached, the black rats that lived there, the same kind that lived on every ship of the time, poured off the foundering steamer like, well, exactly like rats off a sinking ship. And what they found was very much to their liking. The arrival of human settlers on Lord Howe Island a hundred years before, and the goats and pigs they brought with them, had impacted the island's wildlife. But black rats would change it almost beyond recognition. For the rats of the Macambo, the island was an endless buffet, and one where they faced few predators. Not only could individual rats outcompete their rivals, but they made new rats so fast that other species didn't have time to adapt to the presence of this new X-factor. Soon, the island was home to a burgeoning population of black rats, and dwindling populations of more or less everything else that lived there. Within the space of decades, the Lord Howe Island Starling was extinct. Same for the Lord Howe Island Garygon, the Lord Howe Island Fantail, the Lord Howe Island Thrush, the... Well, you get the idea. 
Not all of the animals driven extinct by the arrival of black rats, though, were charismatic species like birds. The island's unique wildlife included some pretty uncharming customers, such as Dryocoselis australis, the Lord Howe Island stick insect. Chances are you're familiar with stick insects, and if not, the name alone is enough to introduce you. They're insects that look like sticks or twigs. They're part of the order of insects known as phasmids, related to leaf bugs and other arthropods that disguise themselves as parts of trees. This makes them popular among science educators aiming to introduce children to the world of entomology. The animals are less foreign-looking than other bugs, not to mention quite docile when held. After all, you don't spend millions of years evolving a body that's indistinguishable from part of a tree, and then go around trying to get people's attention. The Lord Howe Island stick insect, though, wasn't like a lot of its relatives. Where most phasmids are slow-moving and deliberate, the Lord Howe Island species was fast and curious and eager to explore. And unlike its better camouflaged cousins, these creatures were hard to miss. The adults were wingless bugs with glossy black shells, measuring about six inches long and thicker around than your middle finger, a striking look that inspired their nickname, Tree Lobsters. Despite looking like something you'd find in the prop closet for an Alien sequel, tree lobsters were quite harmless creatures, unless you happen to be one of the plants they dined on. The nocturnal bugs spent their nights nibbling on vegetation, and their days sleeping inside of trees, dormitory-style in groups of dozens or more. Not only were they no harm to humans or their crops, they also made handy bait for local fishermen. In fact, if you could ignore the whole being the size of a toddler's forearm thing... Lord Howe Island stick insects were pretty much model citizens. Despite their many virtues, though, tree lobsters were not very amenable to change. Like so many of the species they shared an island with, these creatures weren't prepared for the presence of rats, which preyed on the defenseless insects and their young at unheard-of rates. By the 1930s, tree lobsters, once a common if unnerving sight on Lord Howe Island, were extinct. Another one-of-a-kind species had been wiped from the earth forever by an accident of naval navigation. If you sail a couple miles off the coast of Lord Howe Island, you'll find an imposing spike of bare rock that towers nearly 2,000 feet above the surface of the ocean. Known as Ball's Pyramid, it looks like a tombstone marking the watery grave of some dark and ancient god. Its actual origins, while more mundane, are only slightly less impressive. This imposing structure is all that remains of an extinct shield volcano. Unlike Lord Howe Island itself, Bull's Pyramid is not exactly a tourist hotspot. Aside from a scattering of seabird nests and some particularly stubborn shrubs clinging to the windswept cliffs, the pyramid doesn't have much of an ecosystem to speak of. Despite its bleak landscape, the pyramid has long been a popular location for rock climbers in the region looking for a challenge. In 1964, one of those climbers, David Root, found something strange. The corpse of a six-inch-long black insect. The presence of a dead tree lobster wasn't entirely shocking. One of the occupational hazards of looking like a stick, after all, is occasionally getting used as building material for a bird's nest, like the ones that dot the pyramid. The corpse that Root found, though, was stranger still. 
it appeared to be fresh. A few years later, another group of visitors to Ball's Pyramid, which, again, is a rock smaller than a football stadium, where you can see a total of zero trees, reported seeing the corpses of yet more tree lobsters. Scientific surveys around that time, though, failed to turn up any evidence, and sightings of the insect corpses on Ball's Pyramid petered out. Tree lobsters, it seemed, may have lingered in an unexpected location for a few years longer than anyone knew, but the failure to find anything other than scattered corpses meant there was no reason to believe the animals were anything but extinct. The idea that a breeding population of giant stick insects had somehow crossed miles of ocean, established themselves on a lifeless stack of volcanic rock, and remained undiscovered for 30 years sounded ridiculous. And it wasn't the case. That population actually remained undiscovered for more than 60 years. When Australian naturalists Nick Carlyle and David Prudell went to Ball's Pyramid hunting for Lord Howe Island stick insects in February of 2001, they knew it was a long shot. It had been more than three decades since the last sighting of a tree lobster corpse there, and the ensuing years hadn't made the rock any more hospitable. There was no vegetation other than local bushes and invasive morning glory vines. For a vegetarian bug that lived inside tree hollows, that meant food was in short supply, while shelter was non-existent. With only a couple of days to search, Carlisle and Pradell restricted their expedition to one of the pyramid's most vegetation-rich corners, a series of shrub-lined terraces about 400 feet above sea level. Searching the ground beneath these dumpy plants, the team found exactly what they were looking for. At the base of one bush lay mounds of green frass, insect poop. Even better, it was moist poop, indicating that it had been pooped quite recently. It wasn't just the freshness of the droppings that had Carlisle and Pradell excited, though. To quote from their paper on the topic, the size of the frass indicated the insect responsible for it was particularly large. Taking into account the animal's nocturnal nature, a pair of team members returned to the site of the droppings after nightfall. Following a scramble up a rocky hillside after dark, they were rewarded with the sight of two huge tree lobsters feeding on the leaves of the bushes, the first time living Lord Howe Island stick insects had been seen by a human being in more than 70 years. The survey, and another that took place the following year, found that while they weren't extinct, tree lobsters were hanging on by a thread. The total population had dwindled to just 24 individuals, all of them living on a half dozen shrubs in a space the size of a large apartment. From this population, two individuals were taken to the Melbourne Zoo, where the tree lobster's comeback could begin. Fifteen years after the species returned from the dead, numbers of Lord Howe Island stick insects are booming, at least in captivity. Starting with the two specimens brought to the Melbourne Zoo, the population has ballooned to hundreds of the giant insects. Other breeding programs, though, have not worked out as well. While eggs have been shipped to zoos in California, Canada, and the United Kingdom as a sort of insurance plan for the tree lobster, only the Melbourne breeding program has had any notable success. Captive breeding, though, has helped scientists learn more about the tree lobster and its behaviors than they previously did. For instance, Males and females appear to mate for life, a bonding trait seen exceptionally rarely in insects. 
Studies in zoos have also turned up a quality that likely helped the species survive its decades in exile on Ball's Pyramid. They don't rely on males to reproduce. In tough times, female tree lobsters can lay viable eggs without the participation of a mate, ensuring that even without a breeding pair, the species can carry on. As populations of the stick insect continue to grow, the animals have even been reintroduced to their original home on Lord Howe Island, though only in captivity, with a small population thriving in a local museum. While extermination programs are underway, black rats are still a problem on the island, and there's every indication that tree lobsters reintroduced to the wild there would meet the same grim fate as their ancestors. While the tree lobster is a happy example of a species which dodged the ultimate bullet, it doesn't provide much hope that there will be similar success stories for the Lord Howe Island starling, the Lord Howe Island fantail, the Lord Howe Island garrigon, the Lord Howe Island thrush, or, well, you get the idea. Whether it's the dinosaurs of Arthur Conan Doyle's Lost World, or a few ivory-billed woodpeckers still believed to haunt the American South, the hope of finding hidden populations of extinct animals is an intoxicating thing. Sometimes it even pays off. In 1951, a population of Bermuda petrels was discovered more than 300 years after the species was believed to have died out. These dramatic exceptions, though, are just that. Rare silver linings around a list of extinct species that grows longer by the day. It's tempting to go looking for remnant populations. To believe that through hard work and searching and study, humans can help to fix what they have so often helped to break. For the vast majority of these animals, though, extinction is forever. Dead is dead. And in all but the rarest of cases, these efforts would be better spent working to save species that are still on the brink, rather than trying to recover those who have already been shoved off the ledge. Menagerie is written and produced by Ian Chant. That's me. Our theme music is O Susquehanna by Defiance Ohio. If you like today's show, do us a favor. Tell a friend about it. You can also subscribe to the show on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you do listen on iTunes, be a pal. Rate and review the show. It only takes a second, and it really helps other people to find us. I want to take a moment to apologize for the lateness of this episode, too. We were moving studios this month, and losing a couple days was unavoidable, but your patience and understanding are very appreciated. I also want to let everyone know that in just a couple of weeks, Menagerie will have its first live show. We'll be part of Nerd Night at Steel Stacks in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, so if you're in the area, we'd love to see you there. That's all the news we've got for the moment. Menagerie will be back next month with a new story. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>